Right now, the integrity of the dollar is in question. People don't trust U.S. power. The U.S. is withdrawing from the international sphere. The international institutions we set up in 1944 are fraying. Nobody really trusts them anymore. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about Wow, what is it, like four months now? And I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded. And now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me, and I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking, and if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com which is ledger.com. Also today, we have BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Nick Carter, second 
most highest appearing guest on Bitcoin. What Bitcoin did? We were just tallying it up. <laughs> so I'm behind Jack Mallers. People, yeah, you're behind Jack. Jack's done 12. Second most popular guest on what Bitcoin did outside of normal contributors. I don't know about popular. Second most appearing. appearance. Popular would be. Oh yeah, be down to the. You're my I'm, most popular. I misspoke. There. You, you, you're joint with all 360 other guests. So, Maybe but I'm ahead of Jameson Lop. Importantly, you're ahead of him. You're ahead of Saifedina Moose. Is he not getting invited back on? He can come on whenever he wants. I don't think he wants to because he thinks I'm a tension horror snake. We'll have a little. We can do a little climate debate. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I I wouldn't debate him. I'd rather. Someone like Catherine Hayhoe, who's a, a natural scientist, debates him. But there's nothing like Bitcoiners spouting off uh, on the climate. Yeah, I mean, technically, we did do that for two hours this morning. We did, but we did it in a different way. It was a little more restrained. Yeah, and now we're going to talk Ukraine and Bit- Ukraine and Bitcoin and Russia, and because we're experts in that now. Yeah, people are always telling me to stay in my lane. I don't have a lane, to be clear. As in, I don't have a specialty, so yeah, I think uh, that ought to free us to cover any topic whatsoever. Well, I think we're going to stick with this. <laughs> this is what we prepared for. It's true. Do you know what? It's weird times, man. Um, me and Danny went out last night and got mac and cheese with brisket and uh, nachos, and we're talking about this show, and we realized like every single seems like every single big event now, news event has a Bitcoin angle. Yeah. Like truly, that it's not that Bitcoin fixes it, but like here's a here's a Bitcoin solution. I, we listed them. There's the Belarus protests when they wanted to protest against the state. People were sending the Bitcoin. Same in Nigeria, uh, El Salvador essentially wanted to de-risk being a dollarized state, made Bitcoin legal tender. Uh, we had the Canadian truckers. Yeah, there's always a Bitcoin. That is always angle. a Bitcoin. And it's usually it's like, well shit, just use Bitcoin. The thing is it's because Bitcoin is just money. And so all of these protests, all this turmoil, it involves crowdfunding and setting money around. And Bitcoin's like the one reliable way. Uh and yeah, I mean money and financial rails are intrinsically linked. To all of this. And because political repression, political action is focuses on the financial axis so much now, which we'll talk about today. Where do we start? Well, there's a war going on. I, I know, but we, we're not going to discuss the war. I just did, uh, for anyone listening, we just did two hours nearly with Scott Horton uh, breaking down the history of the war. And we're probably... We're not sure whether they're going to release it before or after this, but if you listen to this and you want to find out the details of the war from Scott Horton from antiwar.com, that would be worth listening to either before or after when we release this. I wonder what his stance is, given that it's antiwar.com. His stance, the summary, because I think it will come after this, I think the summary would be, and Danny will uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but his summary is, is he's not defending Putin and certainly not defending his... Uh, invasion of Ukraine, but at the same time, uh, we have to look at the uh, foreign policy mistakes of the United States, which have led up to this, the expansion of NATO uh, east of Germany and the potential of missiles being placed within minutes of Moscow, um, and that Putin didn't want this. So like, that's like a very quick summary. Yeah, as, as much as 
Putin does wrong, he, he basically criticizes America a lot for their actions leading up to this war. Understandable. Mm. And I, to be honest, I think that show will probably go out before this one, so hopefully people can listen. Yeah. So as part of this, we're seeing the great cancelling of Russia, uh, everything from uh, Formula One racing drivers losing their contracts to uh, film... film uh, what would you call it, film festivals, removing Russian films to uh, the financial rails, just to every single thing. And it's that typical loop. You know what it reminded me of? I think I talked about this the other day. Remember during the BLM protest, then about a week later, every single company's mailing list you're on would send you their BLM email. Yeah. It feels like every single company is doing their, uh, we're, we, won't, uh, we won't trade in Russia, we will close off. They've got their Russia, anti-Russia, pro-Ukraine. It's incredible. Program. There's a, there's a, I had a dinner at a restaurant here last night. Um, it's a place formerly known as the Russian house. They scrubbed off from the sign, the word Russian. So it's just the house. Now it's just house. It's just house. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, it's incredible that they felt compelled to do that. I guess they didn't want to, what, get a brick thrown through their window or something. But yeah, I mean, it's every access conceivable. It's all internet applications, internet services. Or deplatforming Russia. It's like the deplatforming playbook that we saw kind of rehearsed a little bit here in the US against like certain politically exposed figures, just generalized to an entire nation state. It's breathtaking. Um, it's uh, financial. I'm even seeing venture funds saying we are going to buy out any of our limited partners or investors that are Russians. We're not going to invest in Russian companies. You know, Starbucks and uh, McDonald's announced today they're withdrawing from Russia. And it's like, do we hold every individual Russian and Russian company responsible for what the state, the Russian state is doing? It's not like Russia is a totalitarian state where the whole, you know, government apparatus is the rest of the country. Like, there are citizens, you know, there's like individuals. They are obviously not accountable for what Putin is doing. I'm kind of uneasy with the fact that we're in this sort of like economic total war situation against Russia. As if uh, kicking individual Russians off of Spotify is going to make Putin reconsider anything. Hearts and minds. <laughs> if, if anything, I think it would steal my resolve if I were Russian and I got kicked off of Spotify and you know Apple Music and all of my internet services and my bank account was frozen and the ruble depreciated by half. And I couldn't use any payment processors. I'd probably be like, hmm, maybe all that stuff Putin is saying about the evil West, uh, maybe there's like a grain of truth to that. You know, I don't think it would make me uh, become pro-West if uh, if I was deplatformed from everything, every you know, luxury or like internet service that I used. Did you see the Babylon Bee article? Which one? You, you want to find it? Yeah. It was. Um, Babylon B it was that uh, Russia has been removed from Google Maps. <laughs> and it's like a picture of the world. It's funny how that's the first reaction when an entity or an individual does something egregious. It's like, let's deplatform them from everything that they ever used on the internet. That'll fix it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm uneasy about it. Uh, I've, we have Russian employees, so, uh, okay. you know, a number, actually Russian and Ukrainian at Coinmetrics, right? We have quite a few. We're helping them leave, both in both cases, because the Russians are, you know, pretty miserable too. Because 
their country is like under economic siege. They can't do anything. So well, they want to get out of there too. Well, that's a brain drain from Russia though. Of course it is. Yeah, it's sad. But, um, you know, as an ordinary Russian, you don't have any control over what's happening at the state level. But now you're, you're experiencing kind of a financial warfare and uh, you want to get out of there now as a consequence. You can't protest because you'll be arrested. Yeah, exactly. You can't voice your dissent. So you just have to sit and suffer. Look, I'm with you. I feel uneasy about it as well. I feel, I feel uneasy about the damage it's doing to Russians. I feel uneasy about uh, the escalation of war that can come from this because uh, whilst bombs are a weapon, so are uh, financial censorship. I'm, I'm uneasy about the almost xenophobic undertones Incredibly xenophobic, yeah. And it's almost like there's like an open season on on Russians in the US with no, you know, no like restraint. And it's like they're an acceptable, you know, nationality to, um, you know, like spout off against for some reason. When, you know, generally speaking, you know, xenophobia and like other forms of like super hostile, like aggressive, like chauvinism and nationalism would be not popular for some reason when it concerns like Eastern Europeans, it's like seems to be more acceptable, more normalized in this country. It's very perturbing. So what have you been really digging into with this? The number one thing has to be the the seizure of the Russian central bank assets okay. by the G7. I think the reverberations for that are absolutely immense. I've seen a few strategists say the same thing. Uh, Luke Groman, most notably and most stridently. Zoltan Pozar, who's the chief interest rate strategist at Credit Suisse. He's one of the best among sort of like, you know, macro and Fed watchers. He's probably considered one of the most elite strategists. All these guys are saying, this is the end of Bretton Woods. This is the end of Bretton Woods, too. That the US and its European allies went to this step of immobilizing and seizing Russia's reserves. Uh, in foreign currencies, held at you know foreign banks, foreign central banks. That's a move that is completely unprecedented, and it calls into question the um, the credibility of the U.S. dollar system and of U.S. Treasuries of U.S. sovereign debt as a savings device for the rest of the world, which it has been. That's been the the number one primary savings device since 1971 for 50 years over the course of Bretton Woods too. Seizing the Russian um, foreign exchange assets, $630 billion, that is the most aggressive move to weaponize that dollar system, the US-dominated financial system, that sort of hegemonic model that we've ever seen. And it worked, of course, it, to a certain extent, it plunged Russia into like a deep financial crisis. It wasn't something they expected. They didn't expect that. So it shocked them and we'll see what happens. We'll see if it, you know, arrests Putin's ambitions in Ukraine. But it also risks undermining the entire nature of the dollar system. And it will, I think, likely cause other major foreign powers to consider divesting their U.S. treasuries of which there are trillions and trillions and trillions. I think China has something like, you know, over a trillion and they have three trillion in, in foreign exchange, you know, in treasuries and other currencies. That to me is the number one most important storyline here beyond just, you know, the geopolitical day-to-day -day in the war 
um, that's the most important thing that I've been focused on. So these foreign reserves, just so people understand, I understand uh, they tend to be, why are they stored in foreign banks? Why are they not stored in Russian banks? How does this whole system work? Well, basically these are securities that uh, consist of you know debt issued by the US and other nations. And in the system as it's set up today, US short-term debt is considered to be the most risk-free asset, the safest possible asset you can hold. So dollar-denominated debt issued by the US government. It's a liability of the US government, right? It's not a great asset, frankly, because it's yielding at a much lower rate than inflation. So it has a negative real yield. So you're sort of mathematically guaranteed to lose money if you hold it to maturity. But it's very safe, right? Like, um, It's considered to be as good as gold. It is the base savings asset in the international system. So since 1971, when we left the gold standard, initially gold was that asset and the dollar was linked to gold. Now, since then, we got basically the petrodollar system where... um, the, the dollar was the main currency that uh, was used to price and trade commodities. Commodities, especially oil, were traded against the dollar. And then the commodity exporting nations would take the dollars that they were earning and redeploy them back into U.S. treasuries. U.S. treasuries became the dominant savings device for foreign central banks. And the reason they hold these is to shore up their own currency so that they can defend their own currency if the currency starts to slide. Um, and so this was the default savings device. The number one store value in the world was U.S. treasuries, U.S. treasury securities. Not dollars, but treasuries. So the, the debt that the U.S. was issuing. And um, it was fraying a little bit since uh, about 2014. Uh, foreigners have been buying less and less of this. China has been buying much less. They've actually been divesting. They've been selling them. Instead, they've been buying other hard assets. Um, but now this move immediately throws the whole system into question. What is, what is the risk of the system collapsing? So the U.S. is able to really cheaply issue debt because there's always been foreign demand for our debt. Because this has been this perennial bid for our debt issuance, we've been able to issue debt with a low interest rate, which means we can spend aggressively and not pay a lot for that privilege. Uh, the risk would be that Instead of foreigners buying it, which has been declining, the foreign ownership of um, treasuries and the U.S. debt has declined from around 35% to the mid-20s over the course of a decade. The entity that's making up the difference there is the U.S. Federal Reserve. So Lynn Alden says it's like a chef eating his own cooking. It's like very circular. And the U.S. Federal Reserve, that's not like organic demand for our debt. That's um, they're buying the debt with dollars that are printed out of thin air. So that's not really a particularly sustainable system. So as foreigners buy less of our debt, the Fed is buying more of our debt. And uh, they're doing it with dollars that are just printed out of the void. Um, And so that system works as long as people have faith in the dollar and as long as uh, inflation is not elevated. Obviously, inflation is pretty high right now. So that system can't really work in perpetuity. It means that eventually interest rates are going to rise and the U.S. is going to default or the corporate sector is going to default. Uh, just general levels of indebtedness in the U.S. are very high. The U.S. itself, the government, has a very high debt-to-GDP ratio around 120, which is historically very high. 
So if foreigners stop trusting our debt and they stop buying our debt, we're not really going to be able to finance our spending, which is extraordinarily high right now. With deficits, it's something like 12% of GDP. We're kind of like in wartime levels of expenditure, even though the U.S. is not in a war. So that's the risk, really. So the risk is much higher inflation then, because what else can they do but continue to buy more of this debt with more printed dollars or cut spending, but that's unlikely. Inflation or austerity. And what do governments go for? They go for inflation. Go for inflation because yeah. austerity is austerity popular. sucks. Yeah. Everyone hates austerity. Inflation is the more palatable way to sort of reset the system to have a soft default. And no country like the U.S. would ever do a hard default, where they refuse to pay back entities that hold their uh, their their debt. That's only something that you know, like an Argentina or Greece would do. So the U.S. would do a soft default by having very high levels of inflation for a long time and trying to keep interest rates low so that the difference between inflation and interest rates allows them to bring down their general level of indebtedness, which is the 1940s playbook. That's what the U.S. did back then. So they pay the nominal cost, but yeah, it, the purchasing exactly. power of those being paid back has been vastly reduced. So if you hold U.S. debt, you lose in real terms. And that's, yeah, that's the 1940s playbook. Um, what is the implications for other currencies around the world because this feels like it you know the 1940s it was a less globalized economy but now we have a fully integrated global economy this feels like 2008 on crack yeah it really depends so if interest rates rise and the dollar rallies the dollar has actually been rallying interestingly in against when compared with other currencies the dollar index the dxy has been rallying that's a sign of sort of, and uh, actually capital has been flowing into treasuries, paradoxically, which is funny because it's like, okay, the U.S. makes treasuries an unappetizing thing to hold, and everybody's kind of panicked, and then capital flows into treasuries because that's what you buy when you're in a panic. Uh, and the dollar's been rallying. That's very bad for sort of emerging market economies and um, solvency for emerging markets. So you can expect a sovereign debt crisis, probably, um, unless the Fed is very proactive and creates just enormous amounts of liquidity and weakens the dollar dramatically. In which case, then maybe the odds of a you know emerging market sovereign debt crisis are less. But um, either way, the inflation and the commodities rally that we're having right now are going to plunge the world into chaos, regardless. Okay, talk to me about that. Because I've seen nickel up 250% in a few days, weed is up, oil is up, everything, everything is up, gold is up. Yeah, so that's the thing that's sort of deeply concerning. It's like commodity price charts, they're not just numbers on a screen. They're a measure of how of human flourishing, basically. So if the price of a commodity gets cheaper, humans are flourishing more. And if it gets higher, humans are in misery, basically. So it's an inverse flourishing index. So as metals and oil and gas get more expensive, life gets worse for like human beings on planet Earth. And the fact that commodities are in this enormous, monstrous rally, no matter where you look, whether it's food, commodities, or metals, or energy, that's a bad sign for like humanity. 
uh, especially food. I mean, agricultural commodities like wheat going limit up day after day. The you know Russia and Ukraine produce something like thirty percent of the world's exported um, wheat. I might be overstating that slightly, but it, it's a very very significant amount. If they're walled off and siloed off from global markets, countries that rely on a lot of wheat for import, you know, to support their populations, are gonna those governments will collapse. There'll be riots and possibly government collapse. We've already seen governments collapse over commodity rallies. Kazakhstan would be one good example. That was partly due to oil prices, right? You'll see nations like Egypt will probably have unrest because they import a huge percentage of their overall uh, agricultural commodities if this dislocation continues. So commodity rallies will cause just total chaos. Uh, and if the U.S. continues to withdraw you know, from being sort of the like global guardian and the guarantor of energy security and the guarantor of global trade, if they continue to structurally withdraw, which the U.S. is doing actively, um, you can expect you know significant food insecurity across the globe, and um, that's going to hit places like Africa probably the hardest because those are the countries that import a significant portion of their calories. Whew, it's pretty dark, man. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty wild time that we're living through. So with um, with U.S. Treasuries as the world's largest store of value, as such, correct, um, and faith probably being lost in that. What are the alternatives that people would look to? And, and I know some of them are kind of obvious, but like from your perspective, what are you considering? Well, I would say Bitcoin, but here's the thing: what is Bitcoin worth in the aggregate right now? Probably less than a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. And that's if you count all the bitcoins. It's not even including the discounting for the lost ones. There's European bonds, right? European nations issue bonds, but they're like slightly less liquid. They're not as uh, significant in scope as treasuries. It really comes down to U.S. securities. Um, You know, the U.S. has the by far the largest securities market in the world, and that includes bonds and then our equities as well. U.S. equities and property are a very popular store of value. That's really where China has actually been deploying their surplus, has been into hard assets like equities and property. They realized a while back that the treasuries were a bad thing to own. It's probably the right bet. And instead, it's going into other securities markets. Um, but it could just be the case that there's no successor to the dollar regime, that we have you know, a multipolar world, a multi-currency world, that's what Jerome Powell said. We could have multiple reserve assets. Yeah, so he wasn't really talking about Bitcoin there. No, I know. He might have been talking about you have the dollar and then you have the renminbi and then you have the euro and they're all coexisting, which is kind of like what we had you know, between the 20s and the 40s. The British pound was still a very important reserve asset, even though the British Empire had effectively ended with World War I. But these things are very sticky. So, of course, the dollar is not going away anytime soon. But the problem is, if I'm China or I'm India, and I voted abstain on the UN resolution to condemn Russia's invasion into the Ukraine, I'm probably looking at my US-denominated reserves a little bit warily and thinking, huh, are they going to just immobilize them at the flip of the switch like they did with Russia because I funded the US? And the same way that 
Afghanistan got their reserves frozen and Iran before them. So the U.S. is going for like successively larger and larger targets in terms of financial warfare. And uh, if I'm China, I'm thinking to myself, hmm, well, I really want to invade Taiwan, but I'm sitting on a trillion dollars of uh, U.S. debt and you know, a couple trillion dollars of other sovereign debt that's held you know, overseas instruments. I probably want to sell that before I do my, ta- my Taiwan invasion and move into hard assets like gold or um, you know, ports in Africa, things like that. Which, as you said, they have been doing. They've been actively preparing for this. They kind of realized in 2008 what was up. They saw that the U.S. was going to defend its own interests in an inflationary way at the expense of you know, creditors, people holding U.S. debt. And then since 2014 has been really the big shift when foreign governments stopped buying our debt as much. So it's the decaying, it's the, the Bretton Woods regime has been in decline and not a lot of people noticed it. The U.S. has been buying more of their own debt in a circular way. And a lot of people are saying the mobilization, the seizure of the Russian reserves was actually a date, we could say, where Bretton Woods 2 ended. Like Bretton Woods 1 ended on August 15th, 1971, when Nixon ended the convertibility of the dollar into gold. Bretton Woods 3 could be argued ended uh, last week when the U.S. Uh, seized uh, Russia's reserves effectively because that was when the U.S. said, we can go after the 12th largest nation in the world and one of the largest energy and commodities importers in the world and we can use our stewardship over the international financial system against them in a way that undermines the credibility of uh, treasuries. And so in my view, that's a form of default. They basically defaulted on the promise to have treasuries be a risk-free asset. And they introduced the notion of genuine liability uh, and the risk that the treasuries could be immobilized. And so that's, um, you know, that's what a few people are starting to say now is the Bretton Woods system has actually ended and we're in a new system, which is a commodity-based system and there's less trust in the international sphere and it's going to be based on gold, other physical commodities, and maybe eventually Bitcoin. Which, going back to your point, is dangerous because when commodities are expensive, that has a material impact on everybody. Yeah, you kind of don't want commodities to be stores of value. No. Because we need them. It's kind of like why it's bad for property to be a store of value, property, because you need to live in it. And so it makes it more expensive. So that's why, you know, Russians using Vancouver as a, a property as a store value or Russians using London property as a store value, Chinese people using, you know, San Francisco property or New York as a store value. That's bad for the people that actually live there. They need to consume the property, right? Um, that's why we don't want wheat to be considered a store of value. That's why we need pure monetary assets that have no real industrial use or any com- consumable use whatsoever. Which is why gold is actually, it's great that people say gold is like has all these industrial uses and that's what gives it its value. Totally not the case. Gold is primarily monetary premium. has a small sliver of industrial value. Um, and that's why Bitcoin is, is great there also because there's no industrial use for Bitcoin whatsoever. So you're not crowding out any consumable use case. So um, that's why Bitcoin is, as a pure monetary premium asset, um, is a kind of a suitable store of value. 
but while commodities have been rallying, Bitcoin hasn't really rallied. There was like a small amount, but really that feels more like speculation because of what was happening with people sending money to the Ukrainian army or whatever. But it, it hasn't rallied in the same ways, which means it hasn't been, it hasn't achieved what it's set to sell itself as. It's a long game. I don't think there's any sort of like invalidation moment for the Bitcoin hypothesis. I think it has to just continue what it does well. I don't mean an invalidation, but I do mean it hasn't validated. Well, yeah, because I mean, it's too illiquid and too small to be useful at sovereign scale right now. That's just the truth of it. So mm. we have a lot more monetization to do before a nation state can sort of meaningfully start to use it. Uh, it's not something that's owned by nation states for the most part. There's probably a couple exceptions here and there, obviously with El Salvador and others. Gold is owned by a ton of central banks globally. It's easier to remonetize gold. That's probably what Russia is going to do, maybe what China is going to do. It's easier to say, okay, we're explicitly backing our currency with gold. Once again, we're going to increase our, our foreign exchange ownership of gold and back our currency because you already own it. That's the that's the thing the Bitcoiners miss about gold. I think I came on your show and I was sort of like pro gold last time, yeah, which shocked people a little bit. But the thing is, is that gold is already in the hands of governments, so it's easier. It's less of a leap for them to say, okay, we're going to explicitly increase our holdings and back our currency with gold. Yeah, was it you were saying to me, gold isn't the enemy? Not at all. Yeah, um, I think eventually you're going to see portfolios of gold and other commodities and Bitcoin backing foreign exchange reserves. But Bitcoin has a lot of development to do. But you know, the thing is that gold is also has many problems, right? It's hard to send. It's not very transmissible. It's hard to take physical delivery. So Russia is kind of lucky in a sense. Their gold is in Russian vaults in Moscow, I believe. They got like $130 billion of gold. That was the only thing the US couldn't seize, right? Uh, the US is actually trying to like figure out a system to stop anyone trading with them for the gold, but they still have the gold for what it's worth. Most other central banks, their gold is held in New York or in London physically because that's where the gold markets are. And they want the gold market, they want the gold to be pretty liquid and sort of market available. So if they really offended the US or the international community, then even their gold would vanish in a second because it would be held with a custodian that's in the UK or America. So because gold is expensive to move and physically settle, it ends up getting concentrated in these like, you know, handful of warehouses. Bitcoin obviously is much more favorable in that it's cheaper to do physical delivery. It's easy to prove ownership to a third party. Um, and so, you know, it's easy to verify that you have a certain quantity of it, cheap and effectively free. So the more this starts to occur and trust breaks down, the more we're also going to interrogate the qualities of gold. Like now everybody's thinking to themselves, okay, treasuries, wow, there's a lot of stuff we didn't consider there. But also gold, we're going to be thinking to ourselves, wow, there's a lot of sort of dynamics with gold that are a little inferior. Um, and a digital version, a digital commodity, bearer asset style commodity, improves on it really materially. Hmm. So, that's why we always talk about the cost of verification, Bitcoiners do. Because, because gold is costly to verify, you want to have it basically in a single location with a single sort of trusted custodian intermediary. 
Bitcoin obviously fixes this. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, Sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, it's level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full-suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So, while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up, it's Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also today, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Do you see this as a 
massive miscalculation, uh, incompetence, not thinking through the consequences, or is there any any part of this that could be by design? People understanding the consequences because they want something to change. I don't know. A miscalculation on the part of who? On the part of, I say the U.S. The U.S. because they're leading policy on this. Yeah, or leading the. Uh, leading the coalition of sanctions. Yeah, that's the interesting thing is, you know, Russia is still able to sell its energy exports for the most part. We'll see what happens there. To but, the country sanctioning them. Right, and, and you know, the U.S. has been very clear about, you know, carving out exceptions and loopholes and like that. The Germans import something like 50% of their natural gas from Germany, from Russia still. They need that. They don't have an alternative. There just literally isn't an alternative in Europe. Um, and so Russia is still able to accumulate something like $20 billion a month in terms of just liquidating its energy assets, which obviously now energy is super, super expensive. So they're able to sell it at a higher premium too, assuming they can. I think the US is just making a lot of decisions without considering the long-term consequences. Like Obama warned about this in 2015, actually, to his credit, when the U.S. was considering unilateral sanctions against Iran, really aggressive unilateral sanctions, Obama said something to the extent of, we actually need to be really careful what we do here in terms of weaponizing SWIFT, the banking system, and um, you know seizing Iranian reserves because we don't want to undermine the international confidence in the U.S. dollar as the reserve. And that's why the U.S. actually stepped back from the brink a little bit in 2015 when, as it pertains to Iran. But then, you know, fast forward a little bit, the Taliban takes over Afghanistan. The U.S. seizes Afghanistan's central bank reserves, about uh, $7 billion worth. That's kind of small peanuts, right, when it comes to central banks. The, Not for the people of Afghanistan. But that's the crazy thing is they were just regular savings for regular Afghans that had nothing to do with the Taliban in that. And then what the U.S. did, they didn't sort of like earmark it and put it in like a trust and say, okay, well, when Afghanistan has a democratically elected government, they can come back and, you know, they can get their their central bank reserves back. The, the U.S. liquidated half of it and apportioned it to the plaintiffs in a lawsuit against, uh, I guess, the Taliban. Um, and, and they're, you know, uh, I don't know if they've distributed it yet, but they sort of intend to. It was a group of, uh, you know, relatives of 9-11 victims that were suing the Afghanistan government over 9-11, which happened 21 years ago. Um, and so you, so you have a transfer, and there's about half of the $7 billion, right? So you have a transfer of wealth, kind of like a reparation-style transfer of wealth from maybe literally the poorest nation in the country, in the world. To the richest to nation. To the richest nation in the world. Because of a lawsuit, which, I mean, 9-11 was very tragic, but like, how long, what's the like statute of limitations on that, you know? Do the, the Iraqis, can they sue the U.S. government for reparations for the well, Second Gulf War? Yeah, exactly. It's like... You know, I mean, really, it's not about the legal basis at all. It's just about who has power, right? But that was particularly arbitrary, I thought, right? The, also, the fact that regular 
Afghans are just had their savings totally seized. Then fast forward again, Russia invades Ukraine. The U.S. does something that Russia does not expect. They seize the U.S. and the G7. They seize Russian reserves, $630 billion. You're getting increasing escalation in terms of taking the dollar network, like think about the network and all the nodes overlaid against the globe, and you're poking massive holes in it. And you're saying, this node is now off limits. This node is off limits. You're taking what was a global network, and you're throwing the whole thing into chaos and throwing the whole thing into question because you're making the network less of a network, right? And anybody that would join the network is now thinking twice and saying, well, I don't know if I want to be a part of this because I'm giving up so much power. Because previously it was like kind of a gentleman's agreement that you would never seize the foreign exchange reserves, the central bank reserves of another nation. It was kind of like you had sovereign immunity kind of thing. The U.S. basically reacted very aggressively to the invasion and were like, okay, you know what, this is too far, we're going to seize the reserves. And is that going to stop Putin? Probably not. Is he still going to conquer the Ukraine? Almost certainly. Uh, and so what will, what will we have achieved by doing that? And I guess China's rubbing their hands thinking, huh, opportunity. They're the best position to deal with this because what did China really want was they wanted to free the world from the grip of the U.S. dollar dominance. So they've been trying these little experiments here and there, and they tried their Belt and Road Initiative, which was a way to project power and make investments abroad. Um, they had been decreasing the use of dollar in international trade, like Russia-China trade was less and less dollarized with time. They're or creating, were they trading with, would they move to the euro? Or? Uh, I think it's with the renminbi. Okay. But it was dollarized and now it's much less so. Um, China now has an opportunity because China is a commodity rich nation or they certainly buy a lot of commodities um, and produce some as well. They have an opportunity to internationalize the renminbi should they want to. They haven't really acted in such a way as to demonstrate that they intend to do that because they still exercise a lot of control over it. It's very much a managed currency. It's not like a they don't have an open capital account the way the U.S. does. But they definitely have an opportunity here uh, to promote an alternative to the dollar if they want and to promote themselves as, um, as a, safe haven, a safe haven relative to the dollar which would be kind of amusing because it's not like China has a respect for property rights that exceeds that of the U.S. But relative to the capriciousness of the U.S., uh, you know, they might have a case. Doesn't China have its own like alternative version of SWIFT that they've been developing? Both China and Russia do. And ultimately, people think SWIFT is a payments network. It's just a um, messaging network. It's just a way for banks to send messages to each other. So it's really like a standard um, and China has a standard, Russia has a standard. It's actually pretty plug and play. So it's really not that difficult. People say, oh, you know, if you're off Swift, you're sort of out of luck. It's actually like technologically very trivial to move to a different one. They all kind of interoperate with each other almost. The problem is getting the banks to subscribe to your alternative payments and settlements network. And, you know, no banks really want to if the US is doing very aggressive sanctions. But could there be an alternative network that's built between or used uh, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea? These are more considered pariah states. Well, yeah, those are the ones that subscribe to like 
they would be the the prime candidates. Uh, Russia's like alternative SWIFT already operates. I think certain Eastern European nations use it. Certainly used within Russia. Um, Iran, when they were sanctioned by America, they tried to create Europe tried to create a, a special purpose vehicle. I think called Instex, so that they could trade with Iran directly. So the trend here is obvious. Like ever since the U.S. has been threatening, you know, broad-based sanctions, uh, they threatened Russia in 2014. They were sanctioning Iran. They sanctioned Venezuela, of course. Ever since the U.S. was threatening more aggressive and more aggressive and more aggressive sanctions, everybody else has been sort of watching that very carefully and thinking to themselves, how do we diversify away from the system? And something like seizing the, the foreign exchange reserves, that's only something you get to do once, basically. They're not really going to get the opportunity to do that again. They'll probably find that if someone, some country does something they think is going to offend the U.S., They'll make sure that they divest all their exposure first. I think it's it, it spells a death knell uh, for Treasuries as a totally unquestionable store value asset that the world uses. And completely fragments the global financial rails, which is not useful, but leaves an open door for. <laughs> I'm not saying this as a opportunist for Bitcoin, but like there is a story here for a permissionless open network that anyone can plug into that they can't be removed on they can't have their assets stolen from unless they're keeping on exchange but i don't see uh, a nation keeping uh, hundreds of millions maybe billions of bitcoin on coinbase right and i'd love to say that you know bitcoin can slot in seamlessly here and fill the gap you know left by the dollar as the primary settlement network the truth is that we have a long way to go, and maybe it would have been better if this transition had happened a decade from now, as opposed to today. Maybe Bitcoin would have been more ready then. But all that said, Bitcoin has been designed expressly with this eventuality in mind. As the trust phrase within the international system, as IOUs become less useful as a medium of exchange and you know a store of value as well, you're going to want to move back to liability-free money. That's what we had in like antiquity. That's what we had in the days of the privateers. That's why galleon, you know, you would have ships doing their trade routes across the Atlantic with gold as the settlement medium, right? Because nothing else was trustworthy. Then for a time we went to this standard where everyone kind of trusted the US and, you know, everyone behaved as if uh, you know, the U.S. debt was totally unimpeachable. And now we're moving back to a system where, once again, we only trust specie and hard money that is no one's liability. Part of that is going to be gold, but part of that will obviously be digital alternatives, digital commodities. And Bitcoin is the most mature uh, and the best position to fill that gap. But, but there's this parallel situation that's happening between citizens and nation states we're talking about russia that's a nation state um but the what happened with truckers in canada whether you agree or disagree we don't need to get into that because i know a lot of people actually disagree and when i made the canadian truckers show i got a lot of comments on uh youtube and emails where people weren't happy with that situation but but whether you agree or disagree we saw openly that uh, uh state weaponized the financial system against their citizens. They blocked access to funds being raised on uh, GoFundMe. They 
they threatened or arrested or froze access to the banking system for people who even financially supported these people. Not as many as was claimed, but it still happened. So there's an incentive model for a group of people in that country to go, oh, I, I need an alternative. There is within El Salvador, people there considering an alternative. All around the world, there are people considering an alternative. I've adopted, you've adopted, everyone in this room has at least partially adopted an alternative because we recognize those risks. And add to that, you do have a, one country that has adopted this alternative, a smaller nation. And perhaps what we have is a, a growing parallel group of citizens around the world for different reasons who are adopting the system. And perhaps there might be other countries, smaller ones think, hmm, I see what the US did there. We could be under threat at some point. We need to divest into this open permissionless system. And perhaps it's just a bottom-up approach, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. And and I love the way Balaji Srinivasan puts it, which is maybe a little crass, but he divides it into three categories. Woke capital as represented by the US, whether or not woke is the right word to use, but capital that requires obeisance to the American, you know, neo-institutional set of mandates, right? The principles of American hegemony, right? Uh, whether that's local, whether that's, um, you know, uh, something like the Canadian truckers, you know, basically saying don't protest against, uh, you know, the powers that be and, and, and the, you know, dominant narratives espoused by the government, or whether that's international, like don't offend the U.S. government, don't go against their interests. So that's one tranche. Then you have, you know, communist capital, CCP capital, that's going to be the Chinese power projection through the Belt and Road, through the regional power projection, which is going to be, well, you have to adhere to the, you know, effectively Maoist Marxist beliefs. And then there's the non-aligned crypto capital, of which El Salvador is maybe arguably the first member of that subscriber group. When you had, um, back in the Cold War, you know, the expression third world, that referred to countries that were not part of the Soviet bloc or the U.S. bloc. That's why we called them the third world. So they just weren't aligned with either. And in theory, uh, or at least like the way Balaji puts it, is that group could well be using crypto, maybe Bitcoin, um, primarily as their primary sort of financial settlement medium in a way to free themselves from the hegemony of either pole the U.S. poll or the China poll. And I kind of buy that. Now, we need to see another nation join El Salvador. We need to see how sincere El Salvador's desire is to be genuinely non-aligned and whether they are actually going to adopt a Bitcoin standard or just use that as a ploy to you know, engage in expropriation or something. But I think that could be the way this goes. Is You have U.S.-aligned financial system, which comes with all of its political dictates, CCP-aligned financial system, which comes with the CCP dictates, and then the third way, which is predicated on, on an apolitical financial system and neutrality. And I think a lot of political leaders are going to be looking at themselves nervously and seeing what's happening right now and thinking, well, I don't necessarily trust the dollar system. I don't necessarily trust the quality of uh, you know America's security guarantees or their ability to maintain an orderly uh, you know, worldwide trade system, maintain energy security. I don't necessarily trust China. Is there a third way? A system you don't have to trust. Yeah, or you trust the cryptography. 
Yeah. There's this like super fascinating game theory of it all as well. Uh, I was working through it last night with Danny in that you have uh, somebody like Elizabeth Warren. She comes off the show so much. She's such a dick. But she was talking about... I left Massachusetts to get away from her. (laughs) Jesus Christ, man. Woman. Um, Discussing potentially... Uh, Russia using Bitcoin to evade sanctions. And I've seen different commentary on this. I've seen David Zelb did a thread talking about why they wouldn't. And then I think Marty Bent talked about, like, you're an idiot if you don't think they could, but whether this is used as a ploy to attack Bitcoin. And thinking it through, it's like, if you push people to Bitcoin, you also probably really want to hold it yourself. Nobody wants to be left out of a growing alternative currency. And is it that Bitcoin becomes the new treasury bill because it's the thing you it's the last thing you can trust. You can't be removed from it. I mean it might not have this interest rate that that you get guaranteed with treasury bills, but it becomes this like the one last thing you can fully trust. And even if it starts with these potentially third world nations, if it continues to grow and grow and grow, there's a threat to not being part of it. Yeah, I mean, and and look at, at where it's getting adopted. If you look, Chainalysis, you know, for all their flaws, has actually some pretty good data on this. They always do every year. They do a survey showing where, uh, well, it's more it's crypto, but I think a large part of that is Bitcoin, where it's adopted on a per capita basis. And I think Ukraine was like number four last year. And uh, it's all the all the top ten. It's places like Vietnam, India. I think Russia's up there. Colombia, Venezuela, um, Nigeria. These places. It's like Latin America, West Africa, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe. They're places that don't necessarily have the strongest respect for property rights. Uh, they might have a history of inflation. They might have a history of um, banking system that doesn't work or is used to plunder the savings of individuals. So it's all places where you have a reason to want to own your assets directly, outside of the control of either the state or the banking system. And it's not a coincidence that Ukraine was up there. Now Ukrainians are going to be were are relatively well positioned in terms of becoming refugees and asylum seekers and leaving their homes. Obviously, it's tragic that they have to do that, but leaving their homes with at least a portion of their savings intact. Because they can hold it on a hardware wallet or memorize 12 words. That's not really possible with gold, you know? So that is a new thing. And people are gonna be shocked in the coming months with the amount of stories that come out from Ukrainians saying, yeah, like the only reason I was able to secure anything, any of my, uh, my financial security, any of my assets, anything like that, was because I had a digital bearer asset. Well, they, those stories are already coming out. I've seen them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, you know, like, we have employees that are actively doing this, right? So I can attest on a first-hand basis. Having uh, a digital bear asset, something you can truly own that's outside the banking system because it's not working in Russia or Ukraine right now. The ATMs aren't working. The currencies themselves are failing. The banks don't work. You don't have time to you know, get your you know, affairs in order or anything like that. Um, cryptocurrency... Bitcoin is working, right? It continues to work. And now not everyone was onboarded onto it, obviously. Only a small percentage of the population was. But for those that were, it's a lifesaver. It's a godsend. 
And so it is this bottom-up movement that is demonstrating real value in you know relatively developed countries. This isn't in like the total third world or anything like that. So I don't know how you ignore that case study. Uh, you know, we see a lot of sort of like Americans dismissing cryptocurrency and Bitcoin saying it has no use, but how can you possibly look at what's happening in Eastern Europe and think to yourself, this thing is useless now? Because it's the last line of defense financially for a lot of these people that would have had no alternative otherwise. It puts the US in this really interesting position as well with regards to Bitcoin, because my assumption is, uh, as a percentage, the US has, uh, US citizens have the most Bitcoin. It's just an assumption, but yeah, going to go I with it. I think that. that's very fair. Uh, it also has probably the largest percentage of Bitcoin owned by companies or com- Bitcoin companies. Yeah, no question. So really it's in the dominant position for a Bitcoin world. And as the US dollar declines, as there's growth in this digital renminbi, there is a reason for the US to fully back Bitcoin and get behind it. Not just at a state level like we've seen in Texas, but like as a nation, there's a there's an incentive to do it. And there's a, and it kind of aligns with what traditionally what America stands for, which is freedom. And would you argue that the republic is essentially decentralization of some sort? Of course. So to match up the the what the US traditionally stood for, which is freedom and decentralization, there is a currency that supports that. So there's a massive, also massive incentives to do it. It's and should it do it, it may make the U.S. stronger and push it away from these terrible foreign policy mistakes. Like it feels like a lot of potential wins there. It's whether it can happen. Well, and you know, here's the thing: in the '70s, when we broke the tether to gold, we had a period of very high inflation, right? So all the inflation prints we're seeing now, they're the highest since the '70s. And then what we did was we scrambled for a few years until we found a system that restored the security of the dollar and the credibility of the dollar, which was the petrodollar system, where we went to all the oil-producing nations and we said, will you agree to trade oil exclusively for dollars and then buy treasuries with the proceeds? And we will militarily guarantee your security. And that was the deal, and that is what secured the dollar. We need something like that now. Right now, the integrity of the dollar is in question. People don't trust U.S. power. The U.S. is withdrawing from the international sphere. The international institutions we set up in 1944 are fraying. Nobody really trusts them anymore. Um, our allies are openly questioning our you know, importance and authority in the world. The Federal Reserve doesn't have a ton of credibility. They've been wrong on inflation. Inflation is probably going to hit double digits in the next couple of months. Double digits. The energy security and the food security that the U.S.-based order has been premised on is failing. So we need to find something that will shore up the integrity and the credibility of the dollar. The U.S. is the largest holder of gold in the world, right? Officially speaking. <laughs> in Fort Knox. We don't think of the dollar as backed by gold, but we do have the most amount of gold that any central bank has. Do we know if it's that? Do we know if it exists? Yeah, we need to audit Fort Knox, <laughs> right? So the question is, what are we going to contrive in order to restore confidence, right? And Bitcoin is maybe not sufficient, but 
Bitcoin is, it's not exclusively, but it's a very American phenomenon. A lot of the Bitcoin companies are here, as you say, a lot of the Bitcoin holders are here. That could be one part of the toolkit to restore the credibility of the dollar. And we're having a credibility crisis right now. There's no question about that. Is it, is it fair to say that it's oh, now man. even worse than in the 70s? Because at least then they had high interest rates. Well, they had the ability to hike interest rates. You're right. They don't have that ability today. So this happens quicker? The, the crisis, we don't have as many tools to deal with it. In the 70s, debt to GDP was something like 30% when Paul Volcker hiked interest rates all the way up to 20%. So if we hiked interest rates to 5%, the U.S. would be bankrupt. We can't afford interest rates to go to 3%. The corporate sector, we have so much debt right now, the corporate sector would go bankrupt. The U.S. government wouldn't be able to service its debt. So we don't have the ability to do the Volcker and hike rates in order to restore faith in the dollar. So we need to figure something out. Print a bunch of dollars, buy a bunch of Bitcoin and move to a Bitcoin standard. Watch it accelerate in price. The only, that, the only way out is to have a soft default. But the question is, how does the world regain its trust in the dollar and the dollar system? Backed by a basket of Bitcoin and gold. That's, that's what I'd recommend. That's my recommended cure. It's funny, Nick. I've made a lot of shows and sometimes we make a show and I'm like, shit, I need some more Bitcoin. I just do and... I end up going a little bit longer on Bitcoin. Uh, this is the first time I've done a show and I thought, I need to be a little bit more diversified. <laughs> I mean, the, the crazy thing is that Bitcoin is so custom built to obviously improve on the flaws of a liability impregnated store value like sovereign debt, but it's also built to improve on the flaws of gold. And gold is going to become very important here shortly. Every foreign central bank is going to think to themselves, wow, I need some more gold. But they're also going to think to themselves, well, where is my exposure? Like, does buying this gold, is it truly sovereign? Do I really own it if I'm custodying it abroad? And so gold also has all these flaws that are going to become very apparent, right? The cost of verification, right? When you take delivery of a physical bar of gold, you can't really know for sure that those are gold atoms in the bar. It's extremely difficult to perform a genuine physical verification. Um, you really, to truly trust that, you actually have to fully melt it down, do an assay. So that's a very cumbersome process. That's why gold ends up centralized in these hubs. So Bitcoin also, you know, markedly improves on gold's flaws in that respect. And then obviously, you know, there's stuff like multisig, which is, you know, much more complexity and programmability in terms of your custodial arrangement, things like that. So it feels like this is like very obvious, but it's also hidden knowledge that like for some reason the world doesn't possess just yet, which is like there is a solution here uh, and it's just a matter of time. Huh. I'm like kind of worried as well. I can't help be worried because whilst there's been wars during my lifetime, I've seen two Gulf Wars, I've seen a Balkan War, you know, there's there's been more, but like this is the first one where it's it's like a concern in war because of the potential escalation. Uh, I've lived through 
market crashes, 2008, March of 2020. But like, I feel like there's a potential much bigger crash coming. Uh, I feel like there's a lot more to worry about right now than I've ever th- experienced in my life. I'm not, I'm not saying this to be like alarmist, but just like, it's a bit shit. Yeah, I mean, what? frankly, from an American perspective, what's happening now is not good, right? To be clear, what happens now is the U.S. hegemony as the unquestioned single global dominant power is ending, right? So we were at the zenith of our power in 1990 when the Soviet Union collapsed. We went from a multipolar world to a unipolar world. We had 20 good years of unquestioned superiority, absolutely unquestioned from 1990 to you know 2010 or so. And now we're going back to a world where the U.S. is not the sole, the sole dominant power, and so it's as an American, you know, it's not a good thing, right? But we also have to be realistic about what's happening and keep our eyes wide open. China is going to be dramatically empowered by this crisis. There is no question about that. Russia will probably be empowered. We will see what happens, but they appear to be in a relatively strong position, believe it or not. But no question that China will be empowered by this. And no question that the dollar system, which we believed gave us the unilateral right to cut off any entity from that network, sanction them, use the dollar dominance as a weapon of war. We're reaching, you know, we've sort of like fired off all the rounds in a revolver. We're running out of bullets there. Because every time we fire one, everybody else reacts. And they equip themselves better to deal with the next one. And this was by far the most significant round in the chamber. And now that this has occurred, the world's going to consider a move towards a multi-currency system. So it's probably not necessarily a good thing from a broad American perspective. But at the same time, the dollar system wasn't that good for regular Americans, right? It's something that Lynn Alden talks about all the time, Luke Grumman talks about. The fact that we had these structural trade deficits um, and that the dollar was this, you know, uh, you know, enormously uh, dominant uh, tool for international trade. Um, that meant we had to produce a huge quantity of dollars. It meant that the financial system ended up really engorged and structurally too large in the U.S., which was good for people in the financial system like me. But it was really bad for regular people who had manufacturing jobs. Like that, all got completely outsourced. The working class was like totally decimated in this country. And everything was outsourced abroad, and we lost all of our manufacturing capacity. So maybe ending the dollar as the global reserve and moving to a more multi-currency model, like a bank or maybe or a commodity-based model, will actually be better. Because um, we won't, we, maybe this will be a catalyst to re-onshore our manufacturing capacity. And so it's, it's possible that this is bad for sort of American strength writ large as an empire, but is good for maybe your median American. Well, I think there's been little benefit to the world of having such an empire. Uh, you know, some people argue that the world needs a world police and like it's not a popular job and the US has had to do this, but it also appears like it's geopolitical mistake after mistake. And perhaps a weakening of the U.S. may be naked around the world. 
I don't know. I think it's going to be really bad for energy security and food security. Hmm. And the question is, who can step in and you know run that blue water navy and ensure that the trade routes are protected, and ensure that Saudi oil makes its way around all the four corners of the globe safely, uh, and that uh, the fully globalized system of trade works and functions and things like that. And it's not clear that there's anyone that can step in and do that. So the U.S. is very energy secure. It's very food secure. Uh, it's obviously militarily secure within its own borders. The U.S. will be fine if it structurally withdraws from the rest of the world, as it has done. You know, it's always a cycle, looking inward, looking outward. Now we're on the cycle of returning, looking inward. The question is, how does the rest of the world do? And you know, a lot of our allies, I don't think, are sort of adequately prepared to deal with an increasingly isolationist USA, with Europe being a great example right now. Okay. Well, I'm glad I'm drinking a whiskey right now. Cheers. Cheers. Um, is there anything we've not covered that you would like to have covered in this? Um, I think we're on, what, hour four of uh, recording today? Yeah. I think I've probably said plenty. Yeah. Um, okay. Nick, thank you. Uh, if, if people want to learn, well, do you know what? I think what some people listening might be thinking is like, how the fuck do I prepare for this? Excuse, so apologies for the language for everyone who writes to me and says stop swearing, but like, how do people prepare for this? And they're kind of asking you for financial advice. I mean, like, I feel relatif relatively prepared anyway, but like some people aren't going to be and be very nervous about what they're hearing today. Yeah, I mean, I can't offer any good guidance on that basis aside from, you know, learn how to farm and uh, stitch your own clothing and things like that. Um, but I would recommend you know, a few thinkers that helped me, helped steward me through my thinking on this. So uh, two Peters, Peter Turchin and Peter Zahan. Peter Turchin in terms of the domestic shifts that are likely to occur here, and Peter Zahan in terms of the uh, geopolitical shifts. And then Luke Groman, who has been my number one most important thinker, and he's the reason I feel equipped to understand what's going on right now. He's been totally on the mark. And uh, in terms of the transition away from the US-based order to a novel commodity-based order, um, he's, he's the thinker I recommend. What did, do you remember what I said to you yesterday? What was in that? In the car about my garden. <laughs> that you want to start farming? Did, did, didn't I bring this up yesterday? Yep. I said to Danny, I, was like, I bought a new house and... Uh, not that I'm like thinking that we go to this like crazy world where I can't afford food, but like it would be good just to be able to be prepared for certain scenarios. Yeah, like a victory garden. We had those in World War II. Yeah. So yeah, learn to grow your own uh, squashes and leeks and things like that. Tomatoes and potatoes. Um, okay, Nick, look, I always appreciate you coming. You know I love talking to you and uh, yeah. Gonna have to have a deep think about this one. Um, I uh, don't want people to think this is alarmist, but there are certainly signals out there that aren't great. And yeah, gonna have to think about this one. But thank you. I uh, appreciate you coming on. God, I sound fucking miserable, but I do appreciate you coming on. Yeah, of course, man. Always good to chat. And, you know, it's not about, you know, being, you know, too pessimistic about the future, but it's just about seeing it with your eyes wide open and seeing what's likely to happen and seeing what's happening right now with really realistic eyes scenario planning exactly yeah all right man appreciate you thank you
All right, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 